You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Okay. So basically what we're going to do is read the Bible. Um, for half an hour. So you need to have your Bibles so you can check that we're reading the right thing. We are going to say a few bits and pieces in between, but there's a lot of Bible reading here. So please get your Bibles out and follow along with us because you won't understand what we're saying unless you have the Bible there. We're going to start by reading Genesis 1, so that's easy to find, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the the sky, the livestock, all the earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth for every bird of the sky and for every creature that falls on the earth, everything having breath of life in it, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all he had made and it was very good. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. We are basically going to tag team today. Uh, So... Uh, we prepared this, all this material together. Uh, we'll share it uh, together, and uh, we're trying to basically emphasise that uh, you can do all of these things, husband and wife together, and it works. So hopefully, we prove that point. <laughs> okay. Now you can sit down if you like for this section. Then we'll come up for the next one for the next reading. Okay. Just some things to notice about this passage that we've just looked at. Uh, And I'm just going to skim through them, show show them to you. You can take notes if you like and, you know, work out how to apply this stuff. So first of all, things to note. In this passage that we've just looked at, humans are the pinnacle of God's created work and the world is made for them. Okay, so the world is ours, as it were. Both, Both men and women are together made in the image of God. They are made to live in, rule over God's created order. They're made to find rest in him. Next, there is no impression as you read this text that one of them is better than the other. Does that make sense? One of them, none of them, not one is better than the other. They are co-heirs. There's an essential equality between them. Men and women are equal before God. Both rule over the earth together. 
It's given to them together to rule. Part of their job of filling the earth and subduing it is the filling part. That is, they can be fruitful, that is, procreate, produce more of the same, as it were. Uh, Next, God's creation of men and women, the way that they are, is what? Very good. God looks at what he's done, and not only is the creation good, but humans, as they are created by him, are a good thing as well. In other words, what this means is it fits what God wanted for his world and for men and women, male and female, in that world. This is a good thing. God looks at it, he says, this is good. That is good for the purpose for which I created it. That's what I think it means by good. Now, Heather, will I read this next reading? Okay, we're now going to read verses 15 to 25 of chapter 2. So turn to it in your Bibles. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you'll certainly die. Then the Lord said, Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the air, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal, but for the man no helper was found as his complement. So he goes around naming everything, but doesn't find anything that fits, as it were, for him. Um, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place and then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, Ah, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one we'll call woman because she was taken from man. And the great thing about this translation is it's preserved that there's a connection between the words uh, man and woman. And there is in the Hebrew as well. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and the wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. Now, it is this, I think, that lies behind uh, the Bible, including what book? Song of Songs in the canon. Right, so almost in the middle of the Bible is the Song of Songs. What does it say? Basic says sex is good and can be rejoiced in in its right context. It is not something to be ashamed of in the marriage relationship. It is good and from God. Things to note. So here's just a number of things to go through uh, that are, I think, important in this passage. Uh, While there's an equality of being and status before God for both men and women there is order as well. Does that make sense? They are equal, but there is order. The great, that's a great problem for us. We think that if you have a different job, you have a different status. Okay, But in the Bible, there is an ordering, but that doesn't change your status as it were. Uh, then what happens in the text? Well, the man uh, names the livestock and the child, 
Sexual differentiation is created by God and is good. The woman is in essence equal, even if their roles are different and even if there's an ordering in their relationships. Not only that, and this is good news, nakedness and sex is part of the relationship and good and free from shame. That's chapter 2, verse 5. There is, of course, a much bigger picture that we need to think about. You see, here we are looking at the beginning of the Bible and it tells us the start of God's purpose. But what I want you to do for a moment is to look and think about what happens at the end of the Bible. So if this is the the beginning, what's at the end? Uh, Well, at the end of the Bible there is a wedding. It's taken a long time, hasn't it? (laughs) as it were. No, there's a wedding there. And isn't that, isn't that remarkable? God starts off with a garden, puts a man and a woman in it, and then all of script, after all of Scripture you find out, oh, there's a wedding intended in all of this as well. That's where God is heading in his world. Isn't that remarkable? He's heading toward a wedding. That is, his purpose for humanity is a marriage where he will marry his son to his bride, and uh, that is to the bride, and uh, that's where, and and his purpose for humanity is therefore a marriage where he will marry those two. Uh, And that is called, what's that joint, that union called? It's called the church. Uh, That's the marriage of God's son to his bride. And when that has been done, what can you do? You can wrap things up then because that's where God's been heading, right, to this union. Can you hear what God's saying in this? It's quite profound when you think about it this way. In one sense, marriage is at the very centre of the Bible. It's at the very core of God's purpose. Marriage is a symbol, therefore, of a very great reality. And uh, that reality should be respected and honoured and lived in, in the light of these verses in Scripture that said, this is what God's about. But there's even more in these opening chapters about men and women. Here's just a few things to note. The Bible is clear that marriage is an exclusive relationship between one man, one woman. Okay, it's very clear in Scripture. Marriage, number two, marriage is a whole new independent public but exclusive relationship. Everything there is very packed and true. Okay? New, independent, public but exclusive. Okay? It belongs to these two together. Marriage is permanent in nature. The woman is, what does Adam declare her to be? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, marriage creates something like kinship that exists between two brothers in the Old Testament. I have two brothers. I waited a long time for them. Um, My parents, I was the third child born and then there was another girl and the first two had been women, they had been girls and the last one and I thought I'm not going to have a brother. But fortunately it happened. And, And I am kin to those. Till the day that I die, we are brothers. Does that make sense? And what happens in marriage in the Bible is a new kinship is created. So Heather and I 
belong together for life. We are kin, as it were. That's why, uh, so a brother is a brother forever. That is why Jesus and the apostles speak so strongly against divorce. Can you see that in remarriage? Why? Because that breaks that up. And God intended that to be for life. Next, marriage is designed for mutual support and encouragement. God's primary design for marriage is that it ends aloneness. That means that marriage at its core is about companionship. So the guts of our relationship is demonstrated each day for us. We wake, we kiss each other, we hug each other. Then we go downstairs, collect the dog and go for a walk together. <laughs> we are together and, and it's demonstrated as we go and we walk and we talk and we share a meal together and we lie down and we rise up. We belong to each other even as God himself is relational as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Different sort of relationship but it's relational and it's binding. Next thing to say. And we're nearly at the end of my section. Then Heather will come up and say some things. Um, nakedness is good when it is a man with a woman bound together in relationship. Sex is a good way of, of expressing the goodness of being in relationship with another person. There's much more that could be said about these first few chapters of Genesis. But these are the core ideas. And now I'm going to hand over to Heather. Okay, we're up to Genesis 3. What we've seen so far is the ideal picture. Um, and after Genesis 2, unfortunately, Genesis 3 happens. So instead of God's created order, in Genesis 3, um, in, we heard from Andrew, God, man, woman, animal. In Genesis 3, um, the actions are initiated by an animal embraced by the woman, complied with by the man, are, are in defiance of God. And so I want you to look at the role God plays in Genesis 3, 1 to 7. So just have a quick glance at that. In verse 1, we're reminded that God is creator. He's the Lord God. But look at how the serpent references him. He doesn't actually refer to him as Lord. Instead, he just refers to him as God. And bef immediately after referring him as God, he questions his goodness and his authority. By verse 4, he's calling God a deceitful liar. The term Lord God doesn't appear again until verse 8, when God himself appears. The Lord God appears in the garden he's made. And he speaks to the man he's made. Now, Adam and Eve know that God is good and that they are sinful. They know they're guilty. Um, that's clear from verse 7. And so they begin the process of making excuses. So let's look at 8 to 13. The man blames God. He blames the gift and the gift giver. The woman you gave to be with me. The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Your fault, her fault. 
And then the woman blames the serpent because he deceived her. And God's response, he just punishes them all. They have all rebelled against him. And so first the serpent in verse 14, then the woman in verse 15. And what you'll notice about the punishments is that the blessings from God given in chapter 1 and 2 that we read about, they're now curses. Listen to one twenty-eight. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. And in 2.22 to 24, then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. They felt no shame. So in verse 7, we've already seen shame enter this relationship. And now in one twenty, in, in um, we see the blessing of childbirth from one twenty-eight turn from joy into pain. And the joy and harmony that we saw in the relationship between the man and the woman expressed in 2.22 to 24 turning to conflict. So in verses in Genesis 3, 1 to 7, will continue to repeat itself. The woman will desire to assume the authority of the man, but he will rule over her. They're no longer partners. The woman was created as a helper. Now it's a battle of, for supremacy. And then God pronounces judgment on Adam. So Adam just hasn't taken his responsibility to lead his wife into truth and godliness seriously. He just took the fruit when it was offered to him. And so for him also God's blessings have been cursed. So look back at 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat it, you will certainly die. So the garden God had made for the man and the woman was beautiful and it was fruitful. It was a suitable place for rest and and working it was a creative task it's a place for men and women to be how God had made them to be and now work is cursed too the ground's no longer generous it's reluctant it's unfruitful work is hard with death at the end and, and although life and marriage was designed by God to be a wonderful thing, these curses impact us and our marriages today. Throughout the world, there's complications related to procreation, infertility, pain and death in childbirth, 
uterine cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, testicular cancer. These are all part of God's blessing, these parts of the human body, but they now bear the curse of the fall. And not only that, but the marriage relationship has become a battlefield. Men and women compete rather than seek to support each other. I hear wives put down their husbands all the time, subtly. Quite often they'll say, how many children do you have? I have four. They have three kids and a husband. They speak of their husband as a child, not as a leader, not as the person in authority within the marriage. So often we see domestic violence as men seek to rule over their wives with a stick rather than in love. Or as women seek to usurp the order God has given them. The other thing, we idolise marriage and children. We value these blessings above the giver. We give up our faith for our progeny. And work You'll all resonate with this. It's often painful and destructive rather than creative and rewarding. And it too can be idolised. So many marriages have broken up because of idolising work. It's valued above God who gave it to us. So if the goal of creation is rest and not work, Genesis 3 tells us that sin has fractured God's intentions for humans and the world. The blessings God has given, such as work, childbirth, and the marriage relationship, they're all impacted. And they're now full of pain and conflict. Marriage was meant to be a utopian partnership. It's now the partnership of two sinners seeking to glimpse something of the blessing of God. So Andrew's going to take it over from here and we're moving to the New Testament. You can look up Mark 10, 35 to 45. Friends, we, we are in one sense uh, um, apologetic about the level of content but we, we need to fly, okay? And it's very good to get a big picture. Not often do you get this. So we hope this is helpful for you. Um, so, uh, our next passage is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, uh, and um, I'm going to read those for you. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, uh, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you to. As a parent, you never answer that question. <laughs> Um, what do you want me to do for you he asked them that's a very good lead I think they answered allow us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory but Jesus said to them you don't know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with we are able they told him Jesus said to them you will drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared. 
When the other ten disciples heard of this, they began, they were indignant with James and John. And Jesus called over them, them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And their high men, men of high positions exercise power over them. But you must not be like but it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this passage, I think, is uh, so self-explanatory. Think about it and recognise it. We humans like being in positions of power, don't we? Um, and... Sorry, I've just lost my, my place here in the notes. Uh, the response of Jesus is one of love, is, is him saying, no, love one another even as you have been loved. That is, give up your interests for the interests of others. Serve others. That means that the great ones in the kingdom, take note of this, are those who learn to love as they have been loved by Jesus. That is, those who have learned how to be the servant of other people's good and other people's interest. The highlight here is that, like the example of Jesus, authority is expressed in love and service of others. In other words, authority and submission in the Bible is not about hierarchy. Does that make sense? Love and submission... Um, authority and submission in the Bible is not about hierarchy, but serving others. Now, I want you to flip over now to another passage. This time go to Ephesians 5, 18 to 33. So turn in your Bibles to that. Now, I won't read it because of the constraints of time, but it'll be helpful to have it open. So have it open and look at it. I want you to notice some things. Both husbands and wives are to learn from Christ and his attitude to his father. Does that make sense? Both husband and wife, whichever you are, learn from Christ. Husbands are to do what, therefore? They are to love their wives. Now, what is life? What is love in the New Testament? Love, the primary act of love in the New Testament is when Christ lays down his life for us. Is that not the greatest act of love? So what are they to do? What are husbands to do? They are to sacrifice themselves for the good of their wife, even as Christ died for the church. So um, I'm, I'm not the doormat for Heather, as it were. I am the slave of Heather's good. Right? That's what God wants me to do in our marriage. And what are wives to do, and it's easy to do if you've got a husband who's sacrificing himself for your good, is to submit. If the husband is being like Christ, what a delight submission would be. That makes sense? Now, unfortunately, we, we men are human. And so we don't always get it right. But this is what we should aim for. 
Now, I want you to turn to another passage. I want you to turn to 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. And I'm going to read it for you. In the same way, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Your beauty should not consist in outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very valuable in God's eyes. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way. Isn't that a remarkable statement? They didn't go to the mirror. They went to Christ and they beautified themselves by submitting to their husbands just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, says Peter, when you do what, when you do what is good and are not frightened by anything alarming. Husbands in the same way. So wives are given a serve there and instruction. Husbands in the same way live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature yet showing them honour as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So my job with Heather is not only to be willing to suffer and die for her if I need to, but it is to understand that she has a weaker position of authority and to respect that and to regard her as a co-heir of the grace of life. And if I don't, this is one of the very few places in the Bible where God says he won't hear your prayers. If I don't look after my wife, maybe God will not hear my prayers. So both husbands and wives together are to learn from Jesus, learn submission and godliness. Um, now 1 Corinthians 7 1 to 11, and uh, Heather, should we read it or should we move on? Yeah. Over time already. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. So here we go. Both husbands and wives should mirror the, mirror the example of Christ. That's what is in this passage, 1 Corinthians 7. Being married moves, means moving away from self-interest and being dominated by serving the interests of others. But notice some other things in this little short passage. There is mutuality and interaction here over sex. That is, it is recognised that both parties may be interested in sex. <laughs> there is working at things together. There is thinking of the other as more important than yourself and considering them wisely. I think we're going to go over time anyway. It's hard to cover the whole Bible. <laughs> um, so I'm going to look a little bit at what this means within the church. So we've looked a lot at what it means within the marriage relationship so I'm just going to basically do a blitz through some passages and I'll read them to you so you don't need to look them up um, of what it means to within the church. So if we, if we accept these relational guidelines, 
within marriage that Andrew's just covered and, and that we've looked at earlier. We need to think about what it means for married couples within the church. Well, first of all, from creation onwards, God demands top spot in the relationship. We saw in Genesis 3 when things slip and God is usurped, things begin to fall apart. So God's got to be central to the couple's relationship. But not just the couple's relationship, also central to their relationship with others as individuals and as a couple. So listen to Jesus' take on this topic in Mark 12, 28 to 31. One of the scribes approached, and when he heard them debating, he saw that Jesus answered them well, and he asked them, What command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. So once married, a couple are one flesh, and as one flesh, they're now a family unit. Andrew mentioned that earlier. And this means their primary responsibility is to care for their family unity by prioritising each other. Taking an active role in the Christian community is, um, is not godly if those God has given into your care are neglected. We wouldn't respect a parent who neglected their kids' well-being for more involvement in church activities. Nor a child who neglected their parents' well-being for similar purposes. I mean, Jesus actually addresses this in Mark 7 when he slams the Pharisees for doing this. They were setting money aside for religious purposes and neglecting their parents. But although they're one flesh, a married couple is also part of the body of Christ. And in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment. I give you a new commandment, love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this love needs to be expressed within the marriage relationship, but it also needs to be expressed by the couple to those outside the marriage relationship especially to those within the body of Christ. And Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. Therefore I, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to work, walk worthy of the calling you've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And again in Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. And in Romans 13, 8 to 10, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. 
for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour. Love, therefore, is fulfilment of the law. And so the call for married couples is the same as the call Paul makes to all members of the church, um, the body of Christ, in Romans 12, 1 to 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing and perfect will of God. And then jumping ahead to verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honouring one another. Do not lack diligence in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, instead associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to what you, that what you do is honourable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Okay, this is our last little section. I wonder if you notice where I'm just going to try and summarise. Did you notice something as we worked through all those key passages? at low-level flying speed, as it were. The key thing to notice is that being like Jesus is being like Jesus. That is, it's about serving the best interests of others. Can you see that that's at the core of it? The true Christ-like leader is therefore like Jesus. They give up their own interests for the good of the other, just as Jesus did. So how about these verses as a good summary? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, or for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Aren't they magnificent, those verses? Or this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. This is the apostle speaking to his congregation. Fulfill my joy by thinking in the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, Focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of, co- of rivalry of cons- or conceit, but in humility. Consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you notice that? It goes from high position to low position in the service of others. So look and listen at the, to these verses. They show us the glories of Jesus. They find focus in the life and the death of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at tomorrow in church, tomorrow. So come along. It's our Christmas text for tomorrow, that very one that I've read to you then. And make sure you're there and learning from him. And I'll give you a little clue before we go there tomorrow. Don't fight over your rights. Don't demand your rights. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus in submission. Be humble and obedient. And be like Jesus when you are in leadership positions. Be sacrificial for the good of those over whom God has given you leadership and authority. When you do that, you're doing like Jesus. To do this will result in a rich marriage relationship when you apply it to marriage. So God has made me the slave of Heather's best interests. Does that make sense? That's what that means. God has made me the slave of Heather's best interests. I don't always get it right, let me tell you. But that's what God wants me to do. To do it will result in a rich marriage relationship and to do it will honour God the Father like Jesus the Son did by being an example to us.